0: Thirty-six percent better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Get a one-dollar-per-month trial period at Shopify.com/work. Shopify.com/work. Hello, and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show. Does Facebook's new Supreme Court for content have any real power? We'll hear from a venture capitalist betting on how AI will transform the future of work. And an unlikely source of oxygen on the moon. First up, the online world faces a new constitutional moment. This week, Facebook announced how its new content oversight board will work. The social media company unveiled draft bylaws for an independent group of experts with the power to review and overturn decisions by the firm's own content moderators. Last summer, I spoke to Facebook's director of governance, Brent Harris, about what he hoped to achieve.
1: What we're proposing with the oversight board is to create a group of experts from across the world who will bring independent judgment to hard cases and questions and make a determination after deliberation on what's the right answer? Is this something that belongs up on the platform or is this something that belongs down? And really hear a wide array of matters from uh, across the globe.
0: Ludwig Ziegler is our US technology editor and he's been following the story. Ludwig, does this oversight board have teeth? What powers will it really have? I mean, depends on how you
1: define power or teeth for that matter. Yes, I mean, its decisions will be binding on Facebook. So if it decides that Facebook has taken down a piece of content, a picture or a post, not according to Facebook's community standards, so it hasn't followed its own rules, then Facebook has to follow a decision of the board. That said, the jurisdiction, so the remit of the stuff on which the board can decide, is rather narrow when it starts. And it's just looking at whether Facebook was right to take down certain pieces of content. So it's purely about content this time. And the question, the real question is whether this board will ever be able to decide on other stuff like Facebook's data gathering practices or how it designs its algorithm. And then it it, it will become very interesting.
0: How many content reviews do you think that they will take on? Will it be one a day? Will it be a hundred a day?
1: They've told me that it actually it's going to be in the dozen. So let's say maximum of a hundred or so, which sounds even less than a drop drop in the bucket because you have to see their Facebook, I think, takes down 3.4 million pieces of content uh, per quarter. And so uh, uh, having a uh, hundred cases a year seems kind of almost a joke. But I mean, that said not all people appeal takedowns. And also the function of the board is not kind of to adjudicate all appeals. What it's supposed to is, that's why it's called the Supreme Court, is to pick cases that are interesting, uh, which allow to set policy, which then informs Facebook's policy, uh, moderation policy. Now, Ludwig,
0: some people think that this is just Facebook playing lip service to the criticism. Other people think that Sure, if you might want to sincerely do this, good luck. It's impossible. It's a global internet with different cultures. What is liberal in one country might be conservative in another. What is the thinking about how effective this board is going to be?
1: Very good question. So Facebook only play uh, lip service to the whole problem. I don't think so. I mean, it's a real problem. It's a problem for Facebook's reputation kind of to be always in the news if they screw up, taking stuff down. It's a problem for their share price. And they also, I think, genuinely think that they are not – the right institution to make these tough calls on content. I mean, they've spent quite a lot of money on moderation. I think they have, I mean, nearly 20 or 30,000 moderators. So that's quite an investment. And also they've earmarked 130 million for this board uh, to to give it as a budget. It can't be kind of taken back from the board if Facebook is not happy. So it's 130 million million for six months. So I I don't think they're only paying lip service to the problem of content moderation. Now, will this work? it's definitely an experiment. It's a very interesting experiment in, in institution building. And as you say, the question is, will they be able to kind of come to uh, reasonable decisions uh, given that how different content is viewed around the world, uh, speech standards in the US are different than, in, let's say, in Germany. There are certainly many reasons why this go, can go wrong, but I would still say it's an experiment worth uh, uh, doing or uh, trying because uh, I think eventually you need something like this type of an oversight board, simply because platforms should not make these decisions. Uh, Governments are also not very good at them. So you kind of need a layer in between. And if it's well done, it could work. But yeah, admittedly, it's a big if.
0: Now, what about the other big tech giants? Are they looking at this and wondering what to do as well and seeing this as a potential model? So Facebook has designed this thing
1: kind of as an open source institution. So other companies can join, or they could just copy the whole whole model. I mean, there's no trademark, no copyright on this institutional design. And the hope is that, yes, that Google or Twitter, they will join and this becomes kind of like really like the overboard, the Supreme Court of the Internet. I mean, that would um, create a, a whole number of other problems, but I mean, let's, let's put that aside. I do not think that is very likely in the near term. So content moderation is more a problem for Facebook than it's for the other online platforms. I mean, it's a problem, of course, for Google, with YouTube and Twitter, but I think it's most pressing for Facebook. And so that's why Facebook is doing this first. And my guess is that at this point, uh, Google or the others have no
0: interest in kind of helping Facebook solve its problems. Ludwig, thank you very much. Thanks again. Now, there is a lot more about the story, and you can read it all in an upcoming issue of The Economist. And if you don't subscribe, subscribe today. Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. Next, it has become a common refrain that AI is going to destroy jobs. But what about creating them? And for those jobs that remain, how will the age of machine learning change them? Roy Bott is the head of Bloomberg Beta, a venture capital firm focusing on automation, data, robotics, and productivity. He makes a living betting on how AI is going to transform our professional lives. So I asked him, what does the future of work look like?
2: If you think about how your personal life has changed over the last 20 years, about how you connect with your friends and family, how you shop, and then you compare that to the daily experience of going into the office and doing what it is you do, chances are I think you'll find your work life is much less changed, that it mostly looks the same. There are a few new tools, but in the main, the ideas that govern your work are largely the same. And we think that's about to change. We think that we're just at the beginning of this tectonic shift, let alone the fact that we're about to enter an era that we've just never seen before of living your career as a portfolio of different activities as opposed to kind of a, a straight line list of one job after another. And we think that if you look back decades from now, you'll see that shift in work as the most profound thing happening in technology right now.
0: Can you give me a couple examples of the kinds of trends that you think are going to shape the future of work?
2: Sure. One is that the experience of being a professional in an information company, you know the kinds of work that you and I both do, is going to be empowered with a whole new suite of tools that will make you feel like you're standing on the shoulders of giants. Everything from um, we invested in a service that helps you edit a document as you're editing it to predict what the result of the document is gonna be. So imagine their first use the company is called Textio. The first use is an editor for a job description that as you're editing it predicts using AI what the resulting pool of candidates will look like if you use this word versus that word. And if you want to encourage a more diverse slate of candidates, it'll um, recommend that you consider rephrasing something. So that's one example of the kind of a special purpose crystal ball just for that one thing you're doing that may make you feel like you have much more power. Um, A second example is a company very well known by certain software developers today called Repl.it that allows you to open up a browser window, just start typing code and then deploy it without needing to set up a complicated infrastructure, without even needing to go to one of the cloud providers and set up an account. And the idea that anybody with an internet browser can all of a sudden bring little bits of technology into what they do is this kind of lighter fuel that we think can make your productivity burn hotter, your sense of power and ownership and control. Imagine the way that our jobs get more productive.
0: Okay, so part of it is in small technical innovations that make existing processes smoother, faster, and more productive. But are there any sectors that you think something more is needed that are completely ripe for change, that they need to do things differently to survive?
2: Well, the more there is paper in your industry, the higher chance that it's going to see change. So one good example is the insurance industry where brokers report spending up to 50% of their time spent doing this thing that protects us all from unexpected damage is literally pushing paper around. And it's hard to introduce a computer because you have to rethink the entire process. So it's difficult for some of the existing companies to do it gradually. You need a new company to come in and just say, well, what if we just reimagine the whole thing from top to bottom? And so in industries from physical security to logistics, we think that transformation of just imagining the whole thing with technology at the inside is just at the beginning.
0: Isn't there also a risk, though, that by reinventing the entire sectors and processes, that the new companies might be throwing the baby out with the bathwater?
2: I have to admit, I have an issue with this myth that the future gets radically transformed by these flights of fancy. If you think of the most profound technologies that have changed our world, they often emerge from something that looks like a variation on a theme. You know, Google was one of 11 major search engines when it was launched. Facebook was one of 26 college social networks launched in the very year that it was launched. And so the idea that we have to be thinking about a science fiction future in order to get a radically different future, I just think that the truth doesn't bear that out. That said, we've invested in companies that do things like take the role of Patrolling an office at night to keep it safe, and in addition to having a person do it, can have a robot that can patrol places where you maybe can't afford to have a human security guard. And you know, the robot is not doing everything on its own with a fully human intelligence, it's patrolling and waiting until it sees something that doesn't quite know what it is, some anomaly, and then it's radioing back to base and having a human being apply their wisdom and judgment to that moment. And so these kind of teammate collaborations with technology, particularly AI and automation technologies, I think that's what the future looks like, is the the machine is a teammate.
0: Do you really think that people are going to want to work with this teammate, whether it's a RoboCop or any other kind of automated
2: colleague? First of all, I don't think the technology is asking people whether they want it. I think the economic logic is so strong that it's more about how we do it than it is about whether we do it. It's like a force of nature where I can't stop the winds from coming, but I can certainly shape and direct um, the way that they'll affect me. And the reality is every single time you pick up your phone, and it tells you whether the number that's calling you is somebody who's already in your address book who you know, whose voice you want to hear, or whether it's a strange sequence of digits that might mean that it's a salesperson trying to shove something at you. You are already a teammate with the machine.
0: But we've heard so much about how AI is going to be destroying jobs. Do you think that AI and automation will also be able to create work and sufficient work too?
2: Yes, in the sense that it always has. People often ask me what percentage of the jobs are going to be automated, and I have a very simple answer. The answer is, of course, 100%, because roughly speaking, 100% of the jobs have always been automated. If you went back to our great-grandparents' generation and showed them a videotape, of us working as we do today, they'd say, that's not work. That's just, they're just sitting there and talking. They're standing up, they're sitting down, their fingers are pressing on these little bits of things. What are they doing?
0: But will AI provide dignified jobs, not just jobs?
2: Well, I guess my point is that as human beings, we always gravitate toward doing things that are needed. So the AI in and of itself will transform work. It's up to us as a society to shape that wind so that it, that it creates work that has standards, that anybody can do in a way where they hold their head high, where anybody can provide for their family if they're willing to work hard. The choice that's up to us is not whether or not AI will automate work. The choice that's up to us is what kind of work it will create, and we can influence that. And that's why I'm so honored to get to do the work that I do for the decades to come.
0: Roy Bahat, thank you very much. Thank you. Only from rust If the future is living on the moon, or just going on a holiday to the moon, people will need to make or find the things required to support life. Researchers are already working on ways to grow food in space, and icy deposits that could provide water are known to exist on the moon and other celestial bodies. Until now, scientists have relied on splitting drinking water into its elements of hydrogen and oxygen so that humans can breathe. But the European Space Agency, known as ESA, has discovered how to take water out of the loop by generating oxygen from moon dust. Beth Lomax from the University of Glasgow is one of the researchers working on the project. Beth, first, how does this process
2: work?
3: Well, it's a molten salt electrolysis process, which just means that it's like a bath of molten salts, and then we put the lunar soil in, in the solid state and pass a current through it, and it's directly deoxygenated that way.
0: How long does the process take?
3: Well, that depends a lot on the size or the amount of regular theta processing, but also if you want to process it all the way to a metal, or if you're focused on oxygen primarily, then you process for a lot shorter amount of time. How has the oxygen become locked in the moon dust? Well, all minerals are made up of oxides. So even like the rocks outside, uh, when you're walking around your local area, they're all around 40 to 50% oxygen as well.
0: So how efficient is this process?
3: Well, efficiency can be talked about in terms of like, time and cost and yield. So looking at yield, we can remove all of the oxygen essentially from the material. So that makes it really efficient in that sense. And as we were talking about time earlier, if you're processing for oxygen primarily, you can make the process a lot more efficient by not extracting all of the oxygen because the last little bit of oxygen is always the hardest to remove.
0: Okay. But how much oxygen would we create? Would this be enough to sustain life? Could we do this so a person could live for a year on the moon with the oxygen that they harvest from the moon?
3: Yeah, you certainly could, especially with like almost closed-loop life support systems. You don't actually need to create that much oxygen to sustain life. The primary uh, purpose for the oxygen that we're trying to extract is actually more for in-space refueling.
0: Tell me more. What do you mean?
3: So... Oxygen, uh, liquid oxygen, is the largest mass component of most bipropellant rockets, so you need a huge amount of liquid oxygen for bipropellant rockets, but also it can be used just as a gas propellant for satellites, for instance. And so if you are either trying to live for a long term on the moon or travel to Mars, or even try to refuel satellites that are orbiting Earth, it's a lot more efficient to get a kg of repellent material from the moon than it is to try and transport that material from Earth, because Earth has a really deep gravity well.
0: So how did you uncover this idea that you could actually harvest oxygen from moon dust?
3: So the idea of using space resources um, and extracting oxygen from the moon dust has been around for a long time, like 50 years or so as this research field been developing. Uh, the specific process that we're using was only invented around 20 years ago at the University of Cambridge, and since then it has been commercialised by a company in the UK called Metalysis. and so that's where the um, collaboration began with ESA, because the Promise of this technology was realised for lunar resources.
0: Now, the equipment to do this is it heavy? Will it be hard to bring to the moon?
3: Well, yeah, for for any pilot plant, it'll be of course a investment in um, launch mass. But the idea would be to design a mission architecture where the um, amount of useful resources that you're generating will be worth the um, initial launch mass, and that's just a balance.
0: Now, what happens to the waste byproduct of this process?
3: Well, so that's the really cool thing about this process compared to some other chemical processing techniques, is that if we do extract all of the oxygen out, then the, say, waste byproduct is actually a metal powder. And so that in and of itself is really useful. We're hoping for additive manufacturing, um, potentially for the feedstock for um, pure metal and alloy separation. Yeah, so lots of cool things you could do with the byproduct when oxygen's your primary product.
0: Fantastic. Final question is what's the time scale? When do you think that this will become something that we regularly do?
3: Oh, well, ESA is hoping to do a technology demonstration of this uh, in the mid 2020s. And obviously, the pilot plant technology, the larger scale, can be developed on Earth simultaneously. And I would absolutely love to see this operating and helping to create a more sustainable space exploration by 2030, but might be optimistic.
0: (laughs) Celestial sustainability. I love it. Yeah. Beth, thank you very much.
3: Thank you very much.
0: And that's all for this edition of Babbage. While you're with us, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist.